0: It's a simple question, really, but I think it helps us understand so much of the world around us. The question, who eats first? Whether you're a wild animal, a bee, or a human, status roles matter. Hey, it's Kevin Beach, and this is a special archived episode of Akemba. Baxter hates Truman. Baxter's my dog, great dog, from the shelter. He weighs about 60 pounds. He gets along with all the other dogs, except for Truman. Truman's the wonderful German shepherd who lives across the street, proud, regal, few years older than Baxter, and they hate each other. And the reason, I think, is it's not clear who gets to eat first, who's the alpha, who's in charge. When I was in fifth grade, I ran for president of the safety patrol, and I lost. And in 9th and 10th and 11th and 12th grade, I ran for student council president, and I lost. My senior year, I had the best signs. I put myself out there, and I lost. I got to college, and I ran for dorm rep, unopposed, and I lost. I don't think the question is why I kept losing. I kept losing because people weren't voting for me. They didn't see me for how I saw myself. The interesting question is, why did I keep running? So let's begin with business cards. Joel Bauer has made a famous meme on the internet about your business card. You see that business card? Cheap. Strathmore stock. 60 pound. Holds a crease. And the best riff in the movie American Psycho is about some insecure people comparing, of all things, their business cards. Look at that subtle off-white coloring. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my God, it even has a watermark. Why do business cards even matter? How can this little piece of paper somehow be construed as a representation of who we are? And why do we care? Well, if we think about The Godfather, we can start to understand how status roles are portrayed in the media and how we internalize them and believe them. In the opening scene of The Godfather, Bonacera, the Undertaker, the lowest status person in the community, 96 pounds, balding, wearing a nondescript suit, the Undertaker, comes to see the Godfather. The day he chooses is the day of the godfather's daughter's wedding. Sicilian tradition, according to the movie, is that the godfather cannot refuse a favor asked of him on this special day. So in this moment, the godfather is vulnerable. He's vulnerable because his status can be questioned. The undertaker comes to him and asks him to perform violence on some men who have hurt his daughter. The godfather, Marlon Brando, turns to Bonasera and says, That I cannot do. He cannot do it, of course, because if he did, it would make him nothing but a hired thug. Bonasera raises the stakes. He offers to pay the godfather, which, of course, is an insult. It turns him from a mere hired thug to a hired thug who's just doing it for the money. And in that moment, where the status roles of the high-status, status-seeking godfather is threatened by the low-status undertaker, we see, writ large, something that's been going on for millennia. We understand the relationship between Baxter and Truman, because it turns out that throughout the animal kingdom, including and especially humans, status roles matter. Just about Everything you will ever see in a movie theater or a theater or read about in a novel is about status roles. The movie Trading Places is about status roles. The sitcoms of the 60s, the comedies of the 80s, the thrillers that we see today, they're all about who's moving up, who's moving down. But of course it happens in real life. And of course it doesn't have anything to do with money think about that meditation weekend. Nothing but spirituality. Except some people at the weekend are friends with the instructor, so they have a little bit more status. And of course, the guest instructor is wearing a special outfit and sitting in a special chair, so he has a little bit more status. Tribes, these informal groups of people that we are all part of, demand status roles, because it's a form of governance, who's up and who's down. And capitalism requires status roles, because it gets people to work even after they have enough. That the ability to be able to say, I might not have everything, but I have more than you, is buried deep within our culture. That what we have done, is built layer after layer after layer in commerce and in community based around our roles, our status, our business card, our standing in the community. Those Labouton shoes that she's wearing, that Birkin bag, who's sitting at the cool table at lunch, who's the head of the football team or the cheerleading squad or the student council that we repeatedly Look at other people and decide where we stand. And what marketers have done is run with this. What politicians have done is run with this. Because we understand that deep down, human beings care about it. Keith Johnstone, in his brilliant book, Impro, spends the first third of the book talking about how theater is nothing but this exchange of status roles. Professional wrestling is nothing but an exchange of status roles. Nursery school is status roles. Who gets to play with the blocks? Is it the kid who's the biggest? How do we treat somebody who's wearing a cute outfit versus one who isn't? How are we looking and juxtaposing who has status and who doesn't, and which status matters? If you had a chance to watch the videos of Donald Trump shaking hands with various world leaders, what you see is an ancient ritual, a battle for supremacy in something as absurd as a handshake. And when a policeman pulls you over for speeding, in that exchange at the window of your car will be a debate about status roles. Are you going to play low and let the policeman play high? Are you going to take umbrage and say, "Don't you know who I am?" and try to get the policeman to play low?" We're not on the savanna anymore. We're not lions or hippos deciding who gets to eat first and who just gets the scraps. And yet, it certainly seems that way. Four old friends who haven't seen each other in a while get together over lunch. The first one, beaming pulls out his iPhone X, brand new, the most profitable consumer product ever created. The iPhone hasn't offered much new in the way of functionality in five years, but people keep buying the new one, and he knows why. Putting it on the table gingerly, he's moved up in status. His friend, to the left, pulls out his Pixel phone from Google, Android-based, a way of showing he's smarter And his friend he bought something with more power not to be outdone the third friend pulls out a waterproof flip phone 12 years old doesn't matter he's all about the functionality the fourth friend though the status of no status doesn't have a phone at all doesn't need a phone his admin will take care of it and around the circle we go how do we keep it running in a society as rich as ours, with so many resources available, how do we keep it going? How do we keep making people upset and frustrated when they don't have enough status? How do we get people to work all night, even though they have enough, to earn more status? How do we create life and death situations? How do we push people to go into debt for status? Well, it turns out that shame, shame, that basic human emotion, one of the top six emotions that people experience. You know, you've know, you got happiness, you've got fear, and then right up there is shame. Shame is the status enforcer. That what we have done is orchestrate a culture where if you are surrounded by people with more status than you, or if you believe that they have more status than you, We've instructed you to feel shame. And we hate shame. Shame's the deal killer. Shame undermines all of the things that we seek to have. So to avoid shame, we make bad decisions. We make decisions that honor marketers or those that would manipulate us, as opposed to doing what's best for us and the people around us. And it's important that we learn to see it. That once you see it, once you see how this juxtaposition between status and shame is used over and over again, you can see how you're being manipulated. Manipulated to vote, manipulated to work, manipulated to purchase. That status, all by itself, has no real value outside of an arena where someone's trying to take something from us, that the rest of the time it's in our head. It's the story we are telling ourselves about our worth, about our business card, about how we are being judged. As always, there's insight from the good doctor, Dr. Seuss in Yertle the Turtle. Turtles, more turtles, he bellowed and braid, and the turtles way down in the pond were afraid. They trembled, They shook, but they came, they obeyed. From all over the pond, they came swimming by dozens, whole families of turtles with uncles and cousins, and all of them stepped on the head of poor Mac. One after another, they climbed up the stack. What marketers have learned is that the shame engine, the tribal shame engine, won't stop working. All they have to do is highlight it, press on it gently, sometimes with an anvil, but often gently, and remind us that we don't want to be at the bottom of the pile. They remind us with images and offers and sales that if we don't respond, we're going to have to deal with shame. And it's all in our head. Consider the market for luxury goods. Last year, it was more than $30 billion spent worldwide to buy things that were more expensive and probably a little bit nicer than we needed. Luggage, or perfume, or shoes. The list goes on and on. It turns out the industry was invented by one man named Colbert in France. He worked for the king. The French had a problem, which is they weren't doing very well as imperialists, Spain and England were colonizing other countries, building markets, gaining raw materials better than the French were. So Colbert put in place a ratchet, a way to raise more taxes for the king and to build export markets. And the idea was that they would bless certain industries, give them protections and support, and thus France became the leader in things like lace and leather goods, they figured out how to make things better than they needed to be so that people who wanted to demonstrate their status could spend extra money and gain a symbol that would allow them to do this. And hundreds of years later, it continues. The race for more status, not more than anyone in the world, just more than people in your circle, continues. And the digital world makes it even easier to play the game. That Instagram and Snap and Facebook give each one of us a stage, a stage to prance on and show our status, to humble brag our way into showing that we're just a little bit better than the people around us. Or, if we choose, a place to go to feel badly about ourselves, to experience shame, because somebody else is moving up while we are moving down. These networks, and they're busy calling people around you friends, even though you don't even know them, have figured out how to digitize, how to enumerate, how to rank, how to create a game where we are all the players, but we're not the customers. We are the product. We're the product so that someone else, the advertiser, can pay money to reach us. And the thing that they are extracting from us is our attention. We give our attention in exchange for avoiding the shame of feeling like we are falling behind in status. So like the godfather, like the person at the meditation retreat, like the person who's figuring out what shoes to wear to today's meeting, or wondering whether our business card is good enough or not, we're all captive on this merry-go-round, a carousel, around and around and around, playing a status game, where some people are using status to extract behavior from us and other people are busy trying to gain status so in their mind they can win. So what to do about it? Well, two things. First of all, if you're trying to do something important, something beneficial, something good, if you're trying to get someone to adopt a different way of being, I think it's worth paying attention to the status of the people you are working with, and the changes that you are offering. Because when your change promises to move someone's status up, they are way more likely to listen to you. That status roles inform every decision that we make. And if you're trying to sell an idea to someone, you need to be aware of them. But what if you're on the other end of the equation? What if there's a long history of status roles being used against you? Well, one more time, we can go back to the good doctor, Dr. Seuss at the end of Yertle the Turtle. And today, the great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. And the turtles, of course, all the turtles are free. As turtles, and maybe, all creatures should be. Interesting things happen when we start tweaking status roles. The Union Square Hospitality Group is a chain of restaurants, high-end restaurants, in New York City. A couple years ago, they decided to do away with tipping and instead add a service charge to every bill. They did this for a few reasons. One reason is that by law, the people in the back of the house, the people who cook the food, aren't allowed to take a share of the tips. So what was happening was there was a huge gulf between how much some people were paid and how much others were paid. By adding a service charge, they were able to treat everyone on the team as a professional. And what they discovered was that it shifted. It shifted the posture of the people in the back who were paid more fairly, but it also changed the way the service staff acted. Instead of it being a sexist or racist lottery, where how much you were going to get at the end of a meal was based on the whim of a diner and how he or she was dealing with their own narrative about status, the people in the front of the house were able to act like every other professional in a field, getting paid fairly for what they did and doing their best possible work. It's interesting to note that some of the customers are uncomfortable with this, that having tipping be taken away from their discretion, doesn't change the service experience, but it very much changes the status experience. That if in our head we believe that our status role is impacted by our ability to leave or not leave a tip, by what our compatriots see us do when we leave a tip, then part of the experience of going to a restaurant has shifted. It's fascinating to watch an experiment like this unfold because each of the parties involved is shifting their experience of status, often for the better. After the break, I'll be back with answers to the questions you submitted from the last episode. If you have a question about this one, please visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name is Kyle Gray. And first of all, I love the show. And that completes my question. Hi Seth, this is Paul from Huntington Beach, California. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth. Hey Seth. Hi Seth, and greetings from Lithuania. Hey Seth. Here's our first question. My question is, when you're doing your work, you receive feedback. How do you use this feedback both positive and negative feedback in a manner that is constructive and makes your work better rather than reduce its quality. Thank you. The essence of the thinking behind 1,000 true fans is that there are a few people who matter a lot more to the creator than other people. And that's the secret of processing feedback. When a critic doesn't get the joke, when they don't understand you, when it's not what they need or want well then, there's nothing to be done about that. Let it go. Move on. On the other hand, when you hear from the core constituents, from the people that you're counting on, you need to listen very carefully to that feedback. Treat different people differently. Being on your own and indeed building something that will spark change in a community, if you want to still have a balance. Life. I'm talking about raising kids and also um, making sure that you get at least a couple of hours sleep a day. How do you manage to build something slowly, but then at the same time make money to survive? This was the most common question that came in. And it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what I'm talking about when I say that the grand opening is a mistake. Grand openings are expensive. They are fraught with risk. They are foolhardy. The other approach, the smallest possible market, the idea that we can find our people and delight them while ignoring everyone else, that's not slow. That's smart. And so if you're going to make something, you have to be prepared for the fact that it's not going to work right away, that it might never work. If you're going to make something, you have to accept the fact that that it's different than having a day job. Bank tellers get paid when they show up at work every day. Creators don't. So I don't have a shortcut for how to live the life you deserve, how to have a steady income while doing this work. That's beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But what I am arguing for is that the most efficient, smartest, productive way to do your work is not to wish and hope for the fairy of success to come and say everyone knows your idea because she's not coming. That the alternative is to be specific, urgent, and important and to make a difference for a few people because then they'll spread the word and then you can do the work you wanted to do all along. Sometimes it feels like you saying that It doesn't matter the quality at first, just get out there with your work, the work that you believe in. But then what if people give you uh, their attention at first, and then you uh, create this not perfect, you know, ugly duckling, and then uh, people see it, and uh, they never take you seriously again. There's a big difference between just ship it and merely ship it. And I have never argued that people should just ship stuff out, whatever it is, just take a flyer, throw it into the world. Merely do it, though. Merely is something else. Merely do it means with focus and with care. You cannot know what your audience actually wants until you engage with them. So my argument is, yes, build it with care. Build it as if everything depended on it. But no, don't hold it back in fear. Don't hold it back wondering and waiting. You must engage with the audience. Does that mean that some people you engage with who don't get the joke will write you off in the future? Probably. But if you want to, go listen to Billy Joel's early demos. World is always real, can never know. Go look at Jerry Seinfeld's early stand-up. Go find anybody whose work you care about and notice that at the beginning, it wasn't that good. So you're saying to worry about organic traffic before anything else. I see a lot of creators I feel like should be getting traction faster than they are. When is advertising the answer, if ever? Not all ideas spread organically, and there's nothing wrong with advertising. Anticipated, personal, relevant advertising that reaches people who want to get it can be really effective. My argument is that it never makes sense to buy a Super Bowl ad, ever. That you're not trying to reach everyone. But if you know specifically who you seek to reach, by all means, buy the ads. Two good questions about Kevin Kelly's notion of 1,000 true fans. How might you quickly and cheaply demonstrate the power of a 1,000 true fans to someone who's a non-believer? When going through, when building up our 1,000 true fans, how do we know who to target and what to aim for? So let me take another minute to go through the math here. True fans aren't merely fans. they are people who show up with time and money, acting as patrons, insisting that the work continue. 1,000 true fans are the core of how ideas spread. 1,000 true fans can pay for a small team of people to create magical work. The math is pretty simple. If you've got 1,000 people that will come to your rock concert weekend to spend time with the band and pay $1,000 each. That's a million dollars. When you've got 1,000 true fans who are willing to subscribe to your work, paying every month, you can make a living on that. Can you support a giant corporation? Of course not. But you can support an artist, a human, somebody who wants to make a difference. So how to choose these people? Because the people who choose you They might be fans, but true fans are a little different. True fans understand that they are actually engaged in the process of creation. True fans define their future through the work that the artist is doing. They're grateful for it, and they are willing to participate. So part of the discernment that we need as creators is to tell the difference between someone who will take our time and someone who will amplify our time. That's it for this round of questions. One more time, thank you so much for being part of this. If you want to see previous episodes, if you want to see the show notes, which are sort of cool, or if you want to ask a question for next time, head on over to akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot l i. Nk. Until next time, keep making a ruckus. Thanks. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out the Carbon Almanac for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.